You're tuned to Radio BCC, and this is the Six O'Clock Squill. Yes, welcome to the podcast with uh, Tim Blair on the Central Coast, Simon Collins around the corner from me in Sydney, and me, Nick Cater. Uh, this is your reliable uh, authoritative guide to national and international news from uh, three blokes who uh, think they know what they're por- talking about and a guest who usually does. Uh, he, later, we'll be getting to Shari Markson, author of the brilliant new book, What Really Happened in Wuhan, and the uh, Presenter of the documentary of the same name, the uh, audience busting, the audience break, a record-breaking documentary on Sky News uh, the other night. But first, uh, to COVID-19 and police get tough on both sides of the Tasman, starting in Victoria, uh, where they decided this week to crack down on man-baby Nazis. Let's have a listen to, to that grab. There is a network of hard-right man-baby Nazis, you know, just people who just want to cause trouble, these man-babies, they want to complain about the vaccination, and it's just, it, they, they deserve to get the full force of everything that's coming their way. Tim, um, the, the police were certainly out in force. They had uh, uh, 175 round semi-automatic weapons that fired uh, rubber bullets at people. Uh, they had, uh, I think, a, an even larger missile projectile that, that chucked rubber bullets the size of a squash ball uh, for 500 metres with some degree of accuracy. We saw them uh, knocking ladies down in the street and pinning them to the ground and spraying them with capsicum spray and bowling men over like uh, nine pins who just seemed to be standing there. Were they (laughs) tough enough in your view? Oh, those Vic cops certainly know. um, they They can pick their enemies though, can't they? Because there weren't too many of them uh, throughout most of the the first day's protest, which was um, all the CFMEU boys, they didn't do, they, they they held back for a long time on those lads. And I think um, we heard Bill Shorten before calling people man baby Nazis. I think in the Hall of Fame of things you wouldn't say to someone's face, that's got to be on the podium. I don't think you'd wander into that crowd of uh, CFMEU <laughs> lads and start using that phrase. It's not phrase too, isn't it? Man baby. You know, weak, small, Nazis, not that weak, really, and a bit scary. So uh, pick a side. Pick it. Yeah, exactly. Micro-fascist. Micro-fascist. It's right up there, isn't it, with uh, dog-faced pony soldiers. They go, yeah, it's it's like um, 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 a man-baby Nazi is what you are before you graduate from being a man-baby Nazi to being Hitler Youth. (laughs) I guess. So it's sort of kindergarten, Hitler kindergarten. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts on Victoria before we cross to the big news from New Zealand? Yes. Um, it was fascinating to hear right from the outset, from um, from Monday when the first uh, demonstration happened outside CFMEU headquarters. These are fake tradies. Oh, no, it's not them. But it was unfortunate for people pushing that particular line that we had people like uh, Rukshan Fernando, uh, Avi Yemeni on the ground within the crowds getting live footage 
And you watch, especially Avi Yemeni had a, a lovely, not lovely, it was, was kind of graphic and shocking, and the language was something you wouldn't hear in um, here in Buckingham Palace, but uh, it was pretty obvious that we were talking about a, a crowd of CFMU boys in the first instance. Now, obviously, days two and three of these uprisings, you had a whole lot of people in different various groups uh, tagging along and getting involved, some of them more stupid than others. But in the first instance, it, it definitely was unionists. And, uh, you know, a bit, a bit of evidence that RV had was that they all seemed to know what their union fees were. <laughs> you know, you generally are a member of the union if you know how much you're paying every year. It was our own, um, it, 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 it was our own, um, uh, what are they, the Mayo Jaune. Now you tell me, Simon, the French demonstrators. The, 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 the gilet, gilet jaune, yeah. Which was so cool because gilet jaune is uh, what yellow jacket. They had high vis jackets on, so this is the same. It's the same this is uh, sort of phenomena. This has become. This has become. Um, you know, it's become an international uh, a piece of apparel. It's a way of uh, stating solidarity. Even people who've never done a manual job in their life can will start will soon start slipping one on when they want to make their voices heard. They kind of lost me when they when they started defiling the um, the shrine memorial there. Uh, that was they were you know, it was despicable, right? Uh, but uh, it, it, but 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 nevertheless, uh, while their methods may be despicable, I think their cause was a righteous one. Am I the only one who thinks that? I mean, I just don't. I think the state goes too far when it uh, basically coerces its citizens into accepting. A vaccination. Well, I think if you if you think about it, if the if the Victoria Police had simply allowed them to sit on the steps of that monument and protest, um, would it have been so offensive? It was only because that they resist because they were resisting the efforts of police, as you said, sometimes very violently to remove them, that it became an offensive sight. Surely. I don't think they should have been anywhere near the shrine, uh, the shrine uh, of remembrance in the first place. That was probably a tactical uh, uh, misstep, to say the very least. Um, but uh, just on on the broader causes here, you've got a you've got a, an Australian working class that, for the best part of thirty odd years, have been trashed by media and political elites, or elites in all forms. They've um, they've. Uh, lost out to trade issues internationally. Uh, that culturally they're marginalised. Uh, they've been told they're bad parents because they don't get their kids into universities instead of you know, and they prefer to put them in trades. Uh, they've been told that they can't have a smoke in a pub. They've basically been pushed around and bullied for for decades. Why then would these people listen to the elites when they're told you've got to take a vaccination? Everything else they've done to them has been betrayal. So why would they just roll over and go, okay, let's go for it? Uh, not, not, not just their leadership as unions either. The actual Labour Party, the, the, the party that was set up yes. to defend their merit material interests has ignored them. Now but, calls them man-baby Nazis. Exactly. It's, it's absolutely disgusting. Look, you're dead, right, Tim? I mean, I think it's, we'll hear shortly from Shari Markson. Um, there have been some outrageous uh, attempts to suppress obvious truths in this uh, that have gone, you know, been perfect. Facebook, Twitter have been right in the middle of this, but mainstream media has too. So have 
some politicians, as we know, they've hidden the fact or tried to hide the fact, which thanks to Shari is now established that this virus originated from a lab. Now, if they, if, if it's clear that they've been untruthful in deceptors to us on one thing, how can people really take them seriously or trust more a lot more importantly anything they say from here on? Absolutely. I mean, it's a class issue, and uh, you, you saw that very evidently on um, Tuesday when uh, the protesters walked along the Westgate Bridge and uh, Patricia Carvalis of the ABC uh, tweeted that um, that this was uh, evidence of terrible, uh, what's she to toxic masculinity. Now that's coming from someone at the ABC. These guys have been out of work. They've been hammered. And then you've got Patricia Carvalis. The ABC, people forget, the ABC last year, when this thing was really hitting at its hardest, the pandemic, the ABC voted to um, not delay their pay rise. So these people are in such a privileged position. They're earning money off taxpayers such as the tradesmen and uh, tradespeople we saw. And uh, as soon as these guys stand up, toxic masculinity, they get, they get smeared. Yeah, yeah. Well, Patricia Carvelis is a spokeswoman for the laptop class who are in yes. opposition to the people who get dirt under their fingernails. I think that's what it comes down to, isn't it? But look, on to New Zealand, um, where, as I said in the introduction, New Zealand police are also cracking down hard, this time on bootleggers trafficking in pressure-fried chicken coated with a secret <laughs> mix of 11 herbs and spices. Uh, I, did, uh, I, was, I did think that was a fantastic headline in The Guardian. Uh, New Zealand police arrest a pair trying to enter Auckland with a large amount of KFC. <laughs> uh, two men had apparently tried to reach the city with $100,000 and three buckets of chicken and an undisclosed quantity of fries, which in a lovely, I wish this was television, in a lovely photograph under the story, uh, the, the contraband goods are, are proudly displayed on the bonnet of a police car. Um, I find this equally as creepy in its own way as the New Zealand, as the, sorry, the Melbourne police initiative. But uh, talk us through the KFC issue, Tim. I think you've followed this one. Well, the KFC issue, well, uh, the fact that uh, fries are involved does pushes it into a felony category, as I understand New Zealand <laughs> law. Uh, you know, I think one bucket is a, is, a, is, a, is a class A misdemeanor and it just escalates. But I think uh, the, yeah, the key here is not so much the chicken as the hundred grand. I think we're dealing with some fairly serious operators, but uh, not for the first time in human history, they've slipped up on fried chicken. And yet it was, a, it was a fast food that seemed to offend people most. Simon. <laughs> well, listen, I, 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 I saw this out of the corner. Uh, a peripheral vision picked up the story, but it was funny enough to me to I did some investigation. Are you, are you guys aware of the, of the real uh, geopolitical importance of KFC? So, for example, are you aware that uh, the tunnels, the tunnels... That uh, between Gaza and, and and Israel, do you do you realise that they are used on a regular basis? Because, literally, I'm not joking here. There are no KFCs in Gaza, and the tunnels, as well as used for the smuggling of arms and and so on, and, uh, and dissidents to and fro, they are used for wholesale uh, delivery of orders of KFC into Gaza. I'm not joking, and. Going back to New Zealand, I've done my research on this one, boys. Going back to New Zealand, <laughs> there have been issues with 
and I'll be careful how I say this, populations of uh, Kiwi-friendly South Pacific nations have, have sent people, flown people into New Zealand. I think it's Tonga, where there were no KFCs, have been sent, have sent uh, planes have had to control the weight loss on both sides of the plane between, <laughs> because people literally, gr groups of people carrying so much KFC back into uh, the, uh, into Tonga from New Zealand. So don't underestimate the the uh, the international importance of KFC. It's not it's 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 a, it's a diplomatic currency, as well as a, a high a high uh, cal a ca uh, yeah. calorie food. The trafficking in junk food's been going on for some time. I remember um, there was a period several years, I think, when um, Adelaide was the last city in Australia to get Krispy Kreme donuts, and uh, it was hell boarding a flight to Adelaide. There was never any room in the overhead lockers in a flight from Sydney to Adelaide. They were just stuffed full of Krispy Kreme donuts that uh, South Australians, I think, had flown over for the sole purpose of purchasing and was flying back with them. So uh, I was well, rather well, pleased. Just a, just a tip, Nick, if you're in Adelaide uh, and you're looking for some Krispy Kreme donuts, don't open any barrels, mate, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Last week, it... Last week it was Tasmanians are in the firing line. This week, South Australians. Who next? <laughs> Who next? Look, we should get on to uh, foreign affairs, shouldn't we, Simon? I think starting with you've been noting now our the, the the changing reputation for Australians overseas, thanks to the brave efforts of our Victorian police force and others. Well, it's it's not just it's not just the um, the um, the unrest on the streets of Melbourne. But the, uh, of which there was plenty of very dramatic footage, but the, I mean, I, 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 I was, I, the way that overseas, particularly in the Anglosphere, but I think in the West generally, the way that they view Australia has changed quite dramatically in the last 10, 15 years. I was in Australia. I think it started really. I think the, I think the, the inaugural event which kicked it off was, um, I was living in, in, in New York when um, the Lint Cafe siege was on. And I remember watching it very closely, uh, not least because I was unemployed in America at the time, so I had plenty of time on my hands. But I remember watching the my, I think probably CNN coverage of the of the siege. And because, it, because of the time difference um, uh, between, the, between the, you know, the East Coast of America and Australia, there was nothing else going on in America. So a lot of the networks had sort of round-the-clock coverage of that siege. And what that meant was that there were all these different, you know, different competing American networks for the very first time, I think, were in Australia because there was nothing else. They were watching and they had this coverage. So and as you know, the siege went on for a long time. There were long periods when nothing much oh. happened. In between the, 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 the actual action, each of these... Uh, networks and I, I jumped between between them all they had nothing to do but they had to go and find more information more background on the story and I was living in the states and I remember people saying to me my god we had no idea there was even first they had no idea there was any kind of Muslim population in Australia let alone any potential terrorists this was a huge shock to their you know their, their preconceptions about Australia which prior to that was let's be honest most Americans thought about you know, America, Australia, as initially, you know, Crocodile Dundee, and then it was moderated slightly by Steve Irwin. 
and suddenly they, you know, they, suddenly they had this two or three uh, new cycle, two or three day new cycle experience. At the end of which they went, my God, Australia is not the not the tourist friendly uh, place where the only dangerous things are, you know, crocodiles and, and sharks. There are actually, it's like the rest of the world. There are actually bad people doing bad things there. Now, what happened the last few days in Melbourne that was all over the world, especially not just in America, but in UK as well. I had friends in both countries saying to me, my God, what's going on in that country? You know, we this is the like almost like the last the last nail in the coffin of of, 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 of old-fashioned perceptions of Australia amongst our overseas communities. People now talk to me saying, it's not just, you know, you know, right, you know, people opposed to the government here saying it's kind of Stasi-like oppression from the state. And the footage of the, particularly the mm. Melbourneian police, mm. the way they're cracking down on those people was, it's really doing damage to our, it's it's kind of, it's kind of like a countervailing, countervailing uh, views to the, what we're supposed to be doing in terms of our AUKUS alliances and so on, on, on a street level, is this is this a great country anymore? But is it a great country? Oh, are the other three of us pots in the boiling water? Are we frogs in the boiling water? I don't know. I, I was struck by the opinions of two people, one of whom I heard from, the other person I heard indirectly from. One is Oliver Hartwich, uh, the, the Teutonic Kiwi, I like to call him. He, he runs the... New Zealand initiative, a think tank in New Zealand, very well. And in a podcast I recorded with this week, he said, look, as a German, he gets really scared by this because what's happening in New Zealand and here reminds him of what Germany was like 35, 40 years ago, East Germany, the Stasi. Yeah. And yeah. he said I, he felt like he was the only person in Germany, in New Zealand, who felt that way until he started talking to other Germans. And then I heard again um, for a friend who said he'd spoken to a, a South African in Australia, who said, what the hell's going on? I mean, this looks like Soweto. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is not... I, I came to Australia to get away with from this. So I think there's a feeling that the place has changed. Tim, you travel a lot in the States. What, what, do, you, what do you think the impression is over there? Uh, I was chatting to a couple of Texan friends uh, recently about this, and they were like, when did Australia lose their balls? Like, you know, uh, this was before, obviously... Uh, the demonstrations in Melbourne this week. But they're all a bit taken aback by, A, the level of uh, official response, and B, the level of public compliance with a lot of these directives. Mm. So that's... Mm. Uh, that's, uh, that's uh, that is the funny thing. Adjusted, adjusted our national image a little bit. But just on Simon's point about American bewilderment over Australia, I used to work for Time magazine, uh, the Australian branch of uh, the American magazine. And uh, we were coming up to the Sydney Olympics and uh, Time was a big uh, big investor in the Olympics and they wanted to send a team out to do some filming and write some stories about Australia ahead of the, uh, ahead of the Games. And uh, they came up with this schedule and it was like, uh, we'll do some filming on, the, on that Harbour Bridge in the morning and uh, then, then we'll go to Ayers Rock, uh, maybe mid-afternoon. <laughs> and, uh, and it was like... Have, have you looked at a map? <laughs> you know, like you know, they, 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 I think, I think they thought we were New Zealand. I think they just uh, mis misread the global map a little. That, that 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 is that is that is not uncommon. I remember there was a there was a brilliant episode of the of do you remember the, the great BBC show that was uh, that was Minder that was that was exported here. Remember Minder? Fantastic show. Well, there was there was one that they obviously splashed out on production budgets with once with one series. Because they had one uh, storyline that was about 
Arthur Daly's nephew who lived in Sydney, Australia. And uh, it evolved at one point. Arthur flies out to see him. And um, there's a great there's a great segment in this show <laughs> where we see him. We see him, uh, you know, the stock shot footage of a Qantas plane landing. And you cut to the front entrance of what was then called the Regent Hotel in Sydney. And Arthur walks out and his, set, his, his nephew meets him in his ute in front of the Regent. <laughs> and, and, and he says, I'll t- oh, OK, I'll take you to the farm. And then, and then you cut to, the, to Broken Hill, the outback. <laughs> and they, they, they've driven, they've driven <laughs> right, 2,000 miles in about 15 minutes. I, 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 remember, I remember that episode. And, uh, and I, was, I remember being surprised that Terry had managed to persuade Arthur to leave Britain at all. There was another episode where he was trying to get Arthur to go across the channel, catch the ferry across the channel to France, and uh, and 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 Arthur said, "What what would I go there for?" He said, "Sawn off toilets, iffy water, and plod with guns." They, they were great. They were great. They were great scripts. They were great scripts. Were they? And spe- speaking of France, we should we should turn to France uh, and the um, the row between France. And Australia and indeed America over our decision to uh, uh, to drop the deal to buy their submarines and buy some decent American or British ones. They've been pretty furious about this. Uh, I'll just play a clip, a clip from Monsieur Le Drian, or Le, Monsieur Le Drian, I think, from the French Foreign Ministry. But d'abord, euh, c'est vraiment en bon français euh, un coup dans le dos. Euh, cette décision unilatérale. Brutal, imprévisible. Ça ressemble beaucoup à ce que faisait M. Trump. Ça, what did he say? Ça, ça yeah, ressemblait yeah. Uh, quelque chose it's, to M. Trump, I think he said, didn't he, Simon? Well, it's basically, the, the, the translation is basically, you know, it's a, it's a, 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 a brutal, uh, um, unilateral, brutal, um, unforeseeable decision. The kind, it sort of means, the, it basically means the kind of thing that we'd, we'd expect from Mr. Trump. So we're back in. Everything takes us back to Trump these days. I'm afraid. Everything takes us back to Trump. Do you see Trump's hand in this decision at all? <laughs> it, it, look, it's weird though. When you, whenever you hear a Frenchman speaking, it doesn't really matter what he's saying. It always sounds as though he's trying to chat up your wife. It... <laughs> well, that's funny you should say that because you will recall uh, when uh, that uh, that man Macron was here in in Australia standing with uh, Malcolm Turnbull, the then Prime Minister. Uh, he, cracked, he He said how pleased he was to meet uh, the Prime Minister and his delicious wife. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I think they got lost in the translation somewhere. That's right. Will this blow over, I wonder? I don't know. Simon, you know the French. Well, I'm afraid I got a bit carried away with my spectator column last week and wrote about, um, wrote about the French... Um, and how annoyed they were, and how you know they how, how they'd hoped that maybe it could have been them, not Australia, who'd formed who'd formed that triangulation in the South Pacific with the U.S. But that, uh, but I, I made the point that um, you know AUKUS was bad enough, but if it had been the French, the, the White House decided that Fuckus would have been an even more provocative, uh, even more provocative um, <laughs> uh, uh, acronym. Would have sounded nice with French pronunciation, though, wouldn't it? I think the French would have pronounced it without the S at the end. They often drop the last letter, don't they? <laughs> um, well, I think that caught... Look, this is the part in the podcast where 
if we had a serious number of listeners, I'd now be reading some adverts for you. No, no, I was just going to say, you've already given free ad to KFC, so that's going to be worth a bit of a kickback. I want to, I want to talk about art. Yeah, we'll do that. The second half of the programme, which we can record now, if you like. Let's do it. Now it's a great honour to welcome to the podcast Shari Markson. Shari is one of Australia's most tenacious journalists and pursuers of the truth. Her recently published book, What Really Happened in Wuhan, and the ratings-busting Sky News documentary of the same name, is proof of that fact. Shari, welcome to Radio BCC. Uh, I forgot to mention you are also one of Australia's finest motoring writers. And can I start by asking you... Uh, how you got your first job in journalism? <laughs> well, Nick, as as you know very well, I was desperate to get a job in journalism and Nick Cater said, I'm sorry, the only job we've got going is as a motoring writer. And so I said, I'll take it. <laughs> and, but you you were still on your pee plates, I recall. But, but one, I couldn't test drive the cars properly because you couldn't test drive them when you're on your pee plate. So I had to be accompanied for the test drives. <laughs> and, and secondly, I knew nothing about cars. But that didn't stop me. Never, never got in the way of, of a... Of a Starting journalism, so um, so Nick, uh, a, a lot of research went into writing for your motoring section in the Sunday Telegraph. It was the most um, eventful motoring section I, I think uh, <laughs> the Sunday paper has seen. We turned it into um, celebrities profiling celebrities in their cars with it with the me and my car section. And what does the color of your car say about about you? How to feng shui your car? So we had a lot of fun. <laughs> well, uh, after that. Uh, completely a self-serving question which was uh, <laughs> designed purely to show that not every hiring I made in newspapers was a, a dud. Uh, let's get <laughs> on to the substance of your book and your assertion that the virus that 231 million people have caught and that is so far credited with killing 4.7 million people uh, was not spread from animals to humans but was deliberately engineered in a Chinese laboratory. Well, let's hear what Anthony Fauci had to say about your theory in May last year. Well, you know, there's two issues. If you look at the evolution of the virus in bats and what's out there now, it's very, very strongly leaning towards this could not have been artificially or deliberately manipulated, the way the mutations have naturally evolved. A number of very qualified evolutionary biologists have said that everything about the stepwise evolution over time strongly indicates that it evolved in nature and then jumped species. Well, that, of course, was uh, Dr. Donald Fauci, one of the world's... Anthony Fauci. Anthony Fauci. Did I get that wrong? Let's start <laughs> yes. again. That was Dr. <laughs> Anthony Fauci said to be one of the world's great experts on this subject. Now, Shari, are you really trying to tell me that Paul Barry of ABC's Media Watch, Norman Swan, Australia's best doctor, Dr. Fauci and everyone at CNN were wrong, uh, but you and Donald Trump were right? <laughs> what a collection of people, me and Donald Trump up against all of those experts. 
Look, they, Anthony Fauci, Paul Barry, uh, and, and others said this was a conspiracy to suggest that <laughs> COVID-19 may have leaked from a lab in Wuhan. This was never a conspiracy. This was always a clear place to investigate. You had the lab that has the world's largest collection of coronaviruses right in the heart of Wuhan. Of course, this needed to be investigated from the very beginning, even before, you know, all of the evidence we've now unpicked and, and is now included in my book had come to light. This was always a, a clear place to start investigating. And yet, we were told this was a conspiracy. We were told it was a conspiracy by scientists like Peter Daszak, who'd been funding the Wuhan Institute of Virology for 15 years, working with them for 15 years, passing on American subgrants to them for 15 years. This was never a conspiracy. And it's only now a year and a half in that uh, Biden's probe from the intelligence communities has admitted that both origins natural infection from an animal or a lab leak are both equally plausible. Now, the trick with this program, Shari, is we invite people on under the pretense of having a friendly chat, but it's actually a, a cross-examination. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so I'll hand over to my, my learned colleague, my learned colleague, uh, Tim Blair. Hi, Shari. Um, it's a great level of this podcast, isn't it? One minute you're talking to one of the most significant figures in modern politics, and the next you're talking to three lockdown losers on a laptop. So that's great. <laughs> now, with um, with Fauci, though, he's been all over the place. I mean, supporters of Fauci can point at things that he's got right, but on almost every major point, he's said the opposite. Masks work, masks don't work. Yes. It came yes. from bats. It didn't maybe come from bats. And... Uh, even um, our Dr. Norman Swan on the ABC, he's come around a little bit to the idea that, hey, just maybe a really large viral laboratory in the middle of town <laughs> might just have had something to do with a virus coming from that town. So um, have you followed all the, all the politics and the ins and outs of that and how these people, um, their views are, say, uh, malleable? Yes, I followed it very closely, more closely than one would like. It's fascinating because Fauci <laughs> insisted this virus had a natural origin a year ago, and now he says he was always open-minded. Well, that's just, there's no evidence that he was always open-minded to the possibility of a lab leak. Uh, Norman Swan has also come around and, and said that it's possible that this was a lab leak. Uh, Paul, Barry, Paul Barry said he would apologise if there was evidence of a lab leak. We haven't heard him apologise yet. We'll see. No, I, no, I think I think Paul Barry qualified it when he said that um, uh, if the Chinese admitted it or, or evidence was produced, like you're going to be <laughs> yeah. waiting for a while there, Paul. So you would never apologise. Absolutely. But there's another. He... Sorry, Sherry, go on. No, I was just going to say he did use the word conspiracy five times in one media uh, watch segment where he was attacking me in May last year. Simon. Um, well, I just, uh, we're talking about Paul Barry. Um, I just got to say that so we have a tradition on this uh, podcast of, um, of, 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 of dropping in the odd limerick. And I was going to make a special welcoming limerick for you, uh, uh, which this might be the right time to do it. It's never the right time, Simon. But anyway, go on. Get ready to hit the Simon for the latest button. On, <laughs> for the latest on Meghan and Harry, I rely on a hack called Paul Barry. For more serious news, I defer to the views of a genuine journo called Shari. Very oh, well that's done, sir. Wonderful. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> it's always a bit of a worry when Simon <laughs> begins his limericks, and we're, we're always 
highly alert for anything ending in uck. So um, we managed to get through that one. That was good. There'll be another one later, but you'll be gone by then, Sean. Now, do you have a serious question, Simon? Because if not, I do. I do. I do have a slightly. I have a serious one. Um, I, I loved. I loved the documentary, Sherry. That was really good. Thank you. When you were, when you were speaking, one of the questions that arose in my mind while you were, while I was watching was that: Did you get a feeling that when you spoke to you know uh, Trump and particularly Pompeo, I know uh, Scott Morrison got a lot of credit for being the first one to stand up publicly and demand an inquiry. And I think a lot of Australians felt at the time that was a pretty brave thing to do. And I'm just wondering, mm. did you get the, the, the did you get any impression at all that that wasn't a surprise that he did that for, uh, amongst the Americans? Were we in a was there is there a sense that he was kind of a proxy that he'd and it was at the almost at the behest of America that he did it? Yeah, I actually go into a bit of detail about this in my book because I like you, Simon, I was interested in why it was that Australia ended up calling for an inquiry. And um, what I discovered was that America was well aware that Scott Morrison and Maurice Payne, because it was actually Foreign Minister Maurice Payne who made that yeah. announcement publicly first. The United Pompeo was well aware that we were going to be Australia would be calling for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. Other international counterparts were also aware it wasn't that America asked us to do it, that that didn't happen, but they liked the fact that it was Australia taking the lead on that so that it wasn't seen, this is what I detail in my book, so that it wasn't seen as a China versus America, a Trump versus Xi Jinping thing, because of course this was so much greater than that, than that competition between China and America. So the view from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's perspective and his team's perspective was that this pitched it the call for an investigation into the origins as a, um, you know, tyranny versus the West issue, you know, as a more serious independent look. Of course, at that time, no one knew there would be such severe repercussions for Australia and, and the sort of rolling retaliatory moves and tariffs and other aggression that we've seen from China, so it, do you, do you, it, it was it was very welcomed. Do you think that? Do you think that? It, would it be going too far to say, though, that in some ways, perhaps Australia's willingness to do it may may have in some way paved the way for AUKUS? Look, I think Australia. I think there's. It's clear in the in the international community that Australia is on the front line of this challenge with China, and we're seeing China's escalating threat in our region. There are deep concerns about what will happen with Taiwan. Uh, already, no one in the international community has lifted a finger with Hong Kong, really. I mean, the discussion's only been about whether we are going to take refugees. No one made any attempt to actually help Hong Kong. I'm not saying we should have, but I'm mm. saying, you know, the question is, will the US step in and help defend Taiwan if China does decide to invade it? So I think there is clear recognition that Australia is on the front line and, and we have been ahead of the US on many policy fronts when it comes to China, you know, including Huawei. That was something that you remember yeah. Pompeo had to fly over mm. to see Boris Johnson and try and convince him that this was a national security threat. Absolutely. Just on Hong Kong, Shari, there is a there has been a movement in the UK at least 
to grab as many Hong Kong Chinese as they can because that is a massively productive sector of humanity. Those guys know how to get business going. And yeah. there's some talk in Canberra of doing the same. But you know, there are there are opportunities in this debacle that uh, that could throw up for us uh, some um, some positive outcomes. Do you see any other positives at all? Yeah, I think the one positive that has come out of the pandemic is that everyone is now very clear-eyed about China. We are so mm. far from this debate five years ago where yep. everyone was trying to say, hey, China's a threat. And, and even long, I mean, you think back to when Turnbull was prime minister and Julie Bishop was foreign minister, and, and Julie Bishop wanted to sign an extradition treaty with China. Do you remember that? And you had yeah. James Patterson and Andrew Hastie were basically the lone voices fighting against this, and they caused so much problems that the whole thing had to be scrapped. But Turnbull was supporting that. You would mm. never have that mm. extradition treaty now. And I think the one mm. thing the pandemic has done is it has opened everybody's eyes, even in Europe, to the fact that China is is not a you know diplomatic player, that they haven't been transparent, that even now they're blocking any access to the early viral samples. There's no transparency. They refuse to even share the virus samples in the early days of the pandemic that would have helped um, vaccine development. So I think that is the only the only plus out of the whole thing. It's, it's interesting that um, uh, if, people, if you can think back to uh, sort of 2014, 2015, when Trump was only just starting to think about running. Well, uh, I guess 14, more than 15. But I can remember I can remember him saying, uh, whatever you think of Trump, he's never made any bones about China. He's He was always the person who said, I don't know why you're worrying about Russia. I don't know why I'm worrying about our real, our real enemy is China. He's always maintained that China was, was an enemy of the West. It's, it's, it's weird to say it about Trump, but in, in that particular instance, he appears to be almost, dare I say, prescient. Is that would that be going too Look, far? I think, yeah, no, I think that there's a lot of there was a lot of conflict in Trump's position on China. I think he, inconsistency. Sorry, I should say there were a lot of inconsistencies in his position on China because on the one hand he was uh, and he did they he did sign that trade deal with China in January. 2020, you know, just before the pandemic spread. And he was praising Xi Jinping until March or April 2020, praising China for its transparency and cooperation. Um, and I don't think he, in his, admin, in his administration, he wasn't the one, apart from the unfair trade deals, which had been his election platform, I think he was trying to appease China and be friends with Xi Jinping, I think it was more Pompeo who was saying China poses a really great strategic threat to us um, from the recruitment programs, the intellectual property theft, the espionage, the cyber hacking. And so it was Pompeo who, who had to navigate Trump, in a sense, to lead, to try and educate the American people and lead this this massive policy shift against China. That was all Pompeo's doing, and Trump really was trying to keep Xi Jinping on side. And this is something that that I cover in detail, and it's absolutely fascinating in the first part of my book because some of Trump's advisors, the economic people, were saying 
you've got to keep China on side. And then you had his national security advisors who were more hawkish saying, you, this is a huge cover up. And they were begging Trump like not to tweet, to stop praising Xi Jinping, literally begging him. And he, he just was going, he kept praising China for being cooperative mm. and that it couldn't have been further from the truth. So there was this, he, there was this conflicting advice that he was facing within his senior team in the White House. Shari, that, that was a brilliant documentary that we watched on Monday on Sky. I mean, in every respect. Thank you. Uh, you know, obviously you've done your research, uh, but it was very well produced. I thought high quality product. Congratulations to you and all the team there at Sky. Thank you. Uh, I suspect, I mean, I don't, I don't want to sort of reveal how the conjuring trick was done, but I, I, as somebody who's worked in television, I looked at it and thought, it, I mean, you made it look as if you were in the room with Donald Trump, but I think that that was essentially a very complex Zoom conversation you were having with him or something similar, wasn't it? You, you did it remotely. Yeah, so we both, so I had a big, and there's some shots where you can see it, I had a big uh, television screen set up in front of me. I was in a a studio or a hotel suite with a documentary crew and then I was watching him on the big screen and then there was another documentary crew at his end as and he had a camera crew there as well. I would have loved to have done it in person, but it just, you know, we're in lockdown and it just wasn't feasible. Ne nevertheless, I guess even at the end of a Zoom call or a complicated remote interview, it must be quite intimidating to interview somebody with the reputation of Donald Trump. Number one, how did you find him? And number two, did you find him as a convincing witness in this as I did? Well, I was quite, I, you know, I, I'm a very confident person. I don't get nervous for interviews anymore, but I, um, I didn't sleep the night before, <laughs> like literally didn't sleep. <laughs> I was half worried he was going to cancel because I've been told he's prone to cancelling if he just doesn't feel like an interview. And then the other half was just, you know, natural anticipation and nervous energy before the interview. But then when he sat down, um, because he's so famous and we've all seen so many interviews with him, it felt like I knew him. <laughs> uh, because because we know him so well. He seemed to know you, by the way. He's, he sort of <laughs> acknowledged your reputation on this story. Yes. It was very kind that he did that. So then I wasn't nervous when I was interviewing him because I did feel like I knew him so well. And um, so and, and whether he was convincing, it's it was hard to pin him down. So what you saw in the interview, you know, when he, when he gave answers to various questions, that might have been the result of me asking the question four or five times to get an answer. Because uh -huh. what Trump does is he will, he will speak about whatever he wants to speak about. So I'll mm. ask him about something and then he'll start talking about COVID deaths or something completely different. So often I had to ask him four or five times to, to get a, a definitive specific answer on something that this was my, I've been looking at this so closely for a year and a half. I had the person who was president there who had access to all this intelligence and I wanted specific answers about the evidence he saw. So I, I just needed to keep asking those questions until he, he gave some answers. I'm guessing, Shari, that you, you got a good night's sleep ahead of this gruelling interview. Not, not quite the um, not quite the same level of uh, nervous tension is, uh, is being shown. Um, you, you make a great point, Shari about how long it took the world to realise the extent of China's duplicity and evil. But this, this is history repeating itself, isn't it? Because we only really found out 
about the wickedness of Nazi Germany after the war. And you read all the histories of, of, of World War II and you think, well, you know, we know so much more nowadays. We're so much more alert to events. We're so much more connected. Yet China just slid under the radar for so many decades. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating comparison. And I actually think about this quite a bit as a Jewish person. Six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. Mm. We've now had 4.7 million people die from COVID-19. And not only has China prevented any investigation, any transparency at all, any serious investigation, that WHO, the World Health Organization mm. inquiry was a total farce. Yep. Beyond a farce, including, you know, having Peter Daszak as part of it. So I, I think it is a really interesting comparison. And, and I think we're sitting here a year and a half on more information. I firmly believe we will know, we, we will get definitive answers about what accident happened, what occurred in the coming years. There's, there's enough evidence already that I present in my book to, to indicate that this was a lab leak. But I think we are going to get those definitive answers. And then in, say, a decade's time, we're going to look back and say, why did we all treat this as a conspiracy? Why did we give the Chinese Communist Party the benefit of the doubt when we could yeah. see they were disappearing doctors who blew the whistle? They were disappearing yeah. journalists and activists. They were literally disappearing people who have never been seen again. So why sh should we give them the benefit? Why did we give them the benefit of the doubt? Yet the tech giant censored this. The media said it was a conspiracy, most of the media. Um, and, and the scientists said it was a conspiracy as well. So it's been a really shameful exercise. And, and, and um, you know, I don't want to harp on the subjects of genocide, but since you raised that, the Second World War and so on, you know, we all, we, the statistics about um, the number of Jews killed in the Second World War are often thrown around as, as examples of the horrors of this kind of thing. But we should never forget that the, the um, administration that actually holds the Guinness Book of Records, world record on genocide, is the is the Chinese administration, and it was this, and it's okay. Stalin, Stalin, Stalin um, came pretty damn close, or maybe went further, but at least that regime, to some extent, has been removed. It's essentially the same communist regime in China that 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 that, that killed far more uh, people of its own nation than any other um, in history. So. It's a bit of a downer as a thought, but you're right. God only knows what what the true the true toll of this will be. Yeah, and and we're not and even currently in in Xinjiang, we don't even know the true nature of the atrocities and the concentration camps that are underway there for for Uyghurs. We you know that's something that the world is only slowly starting to recognize. But you you know you refer to the Cultural Revolution um, and the Great Famine and. I mean, my book starts with Diamond Lou, who survived that period. She nearly died. She nearly starved to death as a child. And she talks about how if, I mean, the estimates are what, like 50 million people died and the Chinese Communist Party was deliberately exporting its grain that could have fed its own people. And she makes the point, and Wei Jingsheng also in my book makes the point, that they don't care. The communist regime doesn't care for its own people. They don't care if they mm. live or die or survive. There's no humanity there. Simon, uh, Simon, just quickly, um, you're an ad man. 
uh, you've, you've come up with a few creative three-word slogans in your time. Great leap forward. Didn't exactly uh, measure up, did it? No, I mean, you could say it's the one, uh, uh, with hindsight, it's one of the most ironically brilliant slogans of all time. Shari, um, you're right. Uh, we have, uh, COVID has opened a lot of people's eyes about China. I think some of us, you included, didn't need their eyes to be opened. You kind of recognised before uh, what a communist regime was and how a communist regime does not change its spots. But look, this has opened up my eyes to something else and something quite disturbing. I think as a journalist uh, with a background in sociology, I would never believe in conspiracy theories or the idea of a global cover-up. I mean, it just seemed too outrageous to credit. Uh, now I do. I've seen one with my own eyes. Your book charts this. Mm. But for the efforts of Shari Markson and a handful of other inquisitive journalists backed by employers who are willing to take risks, the people who have told these falsehoods, who have censored uh, people who tried to speak the truth, would still be getting away with it. This shakes my confidence in liberal democracy uh, and our whole system of checks and balances, which is supposed to stop people doing these things. How about you? Well, I, th I think um, I don't want to accept the credit there. I think my book brings to light the efforts of people who really did battle in their different fields, in, in the scientific field, within the State Department and various other fields to to investigate this and to bring to light information. I've tried to showcase their heroic efforts. But I think it is a huge lesson for us, massive lesson, and for me personally, and it should be for everyone, that when the, the, the fashionable view is not always right, the politically correct fashionable view might be completely wrong. The tech giants, literally, Facebook censored any discussion that this could have been a man-made virus. When the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that was the business they were in, genetically manipulating coronaviruses. The journalists kept ABC, Media Watch, literally the arbiter of journalism. He, he stood up there and said this was a conspiracy. He used the word conspiracy five times in one segment. You fast forward a year and a half and Democratic President Joe Biden's own intelligence probe said this is a plausible origin for the virus and that the intelligence community was split on how it started. And, and every step of the way to unpick this cover-up, the fact that Peter Daszak was the one working with the Wuhan lab, he was the one who drafted the article in The Lancet that said this was a conspiracy. He was the one advising the intelligence communities. He was the one going in to Wuhan as part of the WHO to um, investigate the origins of the virus. The, the cover-ups have been so extraordinary. I, I mean, I, I've, I think it's just something we always have to remember moving forward, that when we are told something is not politically correct, when it's not the fashionable view, You've just got to look at the evidence and facts independently for yourself, because it could be completely wrong. But then, but but then, but then, you're absolutely right. But the, the the problem people face is when you want to look at those. Where do you go to look at them? For example, people who don't get uh, the Sky Channel uh, at home in Australia. May, may, there must be a lot of people not even vaguely aware of the superb work you've done and the book you've written. 
this has been a huge failure on the part of the mainstream media, enormous. Um, yeah. And you do have commentators with with big profiles who've been writing about this the whole time. I suppose just m my work has been investigating, getting new information. But there've been a lot of people who've been who've been talking about this and and as as commentators and saying this is something we should be taking seriously. A, a lot. Tim Blair's been writing about it since early last year. Andrew Bolt, many, many people. Many unfashionable people. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Shari, look, I know you, you probably have a series of world leaders you're interviewing between now and tea time, so we better let you go. I just want to thank just, you. Just, 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 just before you do that. So, sorry, 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 sorry to keep Xi Jinping waiting, but anyway, Simon, go ahead. <laughs> uh, so, just one more question about, about the because I'm fascinated by that that interview scenario Nick's already and I'm sure I wasn't the only person watching that who was shocked when they saw Mike Pompeo the dramatic weight loss because he hadn't been on television for a while <laughs> and I couldn't help thinking the last time I saw something this dramatic was Kim Jong Un <laughs> two weeks ago who had who had had, had achieved the same extraordinary dramatic weight loss and I'm wondering is there a connection here is it some kind of? Is this? Is it some kind of? Is this, never mind the arms race. Is there a lard race? Look, I, I didn't ask Pompeo for his diet tips. I should have, um, but I think he's lost weight because he wants he wants to run for president. I'm. I was about, I'm you very beat me to confident. It. I'm extremely. I'm extremely confident. Um, and as in, I know <laughs> he wants to run for president, not from him directly, but from sources close to him. I'm extremely confident of that fact. The the difficulty, I, I wonder how he will handle it because it looks like Trump wants to run again as well. Um, and, and Trump and- And DeSantis. Yes. And Nikki Haley. Strongfield, yes. Nikki Haley also. So it will be just be a bit awkward, I think, for Pompeo to run against Trump, but I do think he will stand- um, I think he would make a good president myself. Mm. I Just remember, another exclusive you heard first here on Radio BCC. Uh, <laughs> but look, thank you, Shari. Thank you again. Thank you for writing that book. Uh, if anybody doesn't already know about it, we'll have notes under this podcast about where you can get it. And I'll also, I think, do a link to the Sky uh, documentary, which is a must a must view for anybody inquisitive about the world thank you for joining us on thank Radio you BCC. simon do you have any more inappropriate limericks to share with our listeners in, in the hope of outraging them well nothing particularly acerbic um but i going back to something we talked about in the first segment I did thought maybe it was worth trying to, you know, poetically memorialise um, the um, certain events in in, 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 in in Melbourne last week. And this is, a, if you like, a, this is, if you like, a, um, a little tribute to the relationship between the Premier and the leader of arguably Australia's most uh, talked about union right now. Dan to John. I have a favour to ask. Lest the media take me to task, next time your lot protest in hard hat and vest, 
could they also please don a face mask? <laughs> Very good question. Just remind people you're listening to Radio B Double C, Blair, Cater, Collins. Um, and uh, we, 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 are, we are anything but Philistines on this uh, programme. So let's move on to arts news. Hey, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm right here and I'm being written out of the story. <laughs> I'm, I'm... Well, jeez, man. The... Let's How test terrible. you on this one. A 13 tonne artwork depicting a snake eating its tail large enough for visitors to walk through is about to become the National Gallery of Australia's most expensive commission. Uh, does the panel agree with me this is money well spent? Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I do like your description of it, the snake um, eating its own tail. From certain angles, though, I mean, it's, it's made of stainless steel, I think, this thing. It looks like it's 13 tonnes, right? It looks like something that was left on your lawn by a 120-tonne dog. That's right. And if that's any clue as to what's inside the gallery, you'd just you'd give it a bit of a miss. But it's meant to be outside the National Gallery, fourteen million dollars uh, uh, as a commission, and um, it's a sort of thing. The worst sort of outdoor public art in the world is in the grounds around the United Nations Building in New York. You'd be familiar with those, Simon. Dreadful seventies sort of style stuff, and we're replicating that forty years later. Exactly, you know. When they're trying to get some monstrous building through planning permission on the council, they mitigate it, they soften it by saying, we will provide some kind of, we'll provide some public art. The public art is not art, it's just bollocks. Yeah. In fact, in fact, the last, in fact, in fact, the last time that um, we made this kind of purchase with, you know, taxpayers' money, this kind of artistic purchase was back in the 1973, 74, when I think it was Gough Whitlam, Government authorized the. Uh, was it the Argari? Yeah. It was the uh, Blue Pulse. Yeah, it was Blue, Blue Pulse. No, 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 no. Well, it was cheap though, wasn't it? One point three million. We could have bought ten of them for the price of this large turd. Or I'm, al- I'm alive for, but in in nineteen seventy three, one point three was probably twenty million. You know, uh, but I just thought of a way. As you said all that, Tim, it just suddenly occurred to me. They both. Funded by the public, right? So, so, but the the first one was Jackson Pollock, right? Yeah. Mm. This one is tax on bollocks. <laughs> it's 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 just a load of old pots, if you ask me. Yeah, it's terrible. But am uh... going to uh, be serious for a moment? Being serious for a moment. Christopher Allen, who's the Australian's art critic, uh, wrote a piece about this, and I have to say, hats off to him because he said. He said, look, it's too much to pay for any artwork. Um, and he, he cited a few examples of great, uh, great old master's works, many of which we could have purchased for that $14 million. And he, he quoted Camille Corot as an example. We could have bought, there's a page we could have bought. Um, and I thought to myself, it's great. I'm glad he's, I'm glad he's speaking out. I wish he would speak out. I wish most art critics in Australia would have the courage to speak out about things like, you know, more, you know, not just about public art that's funded by taxpayers, but just events in art galleries, the Archibald Prize, last year's Archibald Prize winner. There's never still been an art, an Australian art critic who's come out and been honest about 
the winner of that. You're referring to the uh, Adam Goods artwork. That uh, well, well, it, well, let's 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 say it for what it is. It's a portrait. It's it's ostensibly a portrait of Adam Good. Mm. If you didn't, if you didn't know that, if you weren't told that, you'd never recognise him. Yeah. So 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 first of all, it, mm. it fails the first uh, hurdle of is it a good portrait? Secondly, it's done with such an absolute conspicuous absence of of, of craftsmanship and and skill. Yeah. But if it had done it, if it'd been done by a, a white guy, it would never have been. It would have never left the packing room. It would never have left the packing room. Surely you're not suggesting some favoritism, are you? Well, the fact that it, the fact that the surname of the artist was Namajira, is yes, it's yes, it's one of the reasons. And you know, it had it the world's most woke uh, title, you know, like uh, stand up for what you believe or something, or stand up for who you are. Um, let me tell you, I think that's an insult to the memory of Albert Namajira, who was a superb painter, who was an absolutely brilliant craftsman and artist, and whose legacy, ironically, mm. was picked up last in, in the same year, 2020, by another superb Aboriginal painter who won the Win Prize, which was, his painting was very much in that tradition of Albert Namajira. But nobody dares to say... That's not a very good painting. It's not been very well. It's not a great conceptually, and it's been very badly painted. It's ugly, yeah. and it should not be on the walls of our of our of our our galleries. How I am. Um, it, it it recalled for me um, artworks you used to see in the seventies on the side of panel vans. I mean, if you added a unicorn, a unicorn, or you know something like that, something of that nature, you know, a, a topless woman on a on a on a on a stallion or something. Then you then you then you know then it's getting first prize in the uh, the, the the Werribee version of uh, of uh, of the um, Archibald. Uh, now you're talking. No, now you're talking. Art. Do you think that the, we can persuade the National Gallery of Art to acquire a panel van? Well, it should be a genre. It should be a. Look, look! I just mentioned my hometown there. Single greatest artwork I ever saw as a as a youngster in Werribee. Uh, there, was a, there was a new addition to the train station there as the population of that uh, western suburb began to grow, and um, and there were big blank walls there, and uh, they invited I think uh, the high school or a couple of schools to uh, come up with some kind of a um, mural, and they went with as was the style at the time, a kind of an Amazonian rainforest theme. But then, just to punch it up a bit, <laughs> they threw in a Ford Falcon GTHO Phase 3 bursting through the middle of the Amazonian rainforest. <laughs> it was a beautiful, beautiful work. Well, look, I, I, not all of our listeners share our love of the fine arts, so we might move on to sport, chaps. Um, and first, I think we... We owe, we should congratulate the Queensland Sun. Oh yeah, S U N S, not S O N S, for romping home to a forty-two eighteen victory in the under eighteen titles last week. Uh, we should point out that this uh, this is a team of of, of of men or males, as I guess they are under eighteen, uh, for the first time competing in a a league which had hitherto been open only to players who identified as female is this a triumph for diversity and inclusion do you think well according to uh, netball queensland the officiating body uh when they were <laughs> when they had to deal with um the entry you know the uh, the, the this 
team of boys that were going to enter this competition. And they were trying to work out, should we let this proceed? Should we, you know, what should we do? And uh, as Netball Queensland said, they decided to choose inclusion over exclusion, which is a really nice way of saying, we've just decided to exclude girls from any chance of winning this competition. It's absurd. It's brutal. It's so wrong. And the, and apparently the um, the parents, it was a, quite a large crowd. The parents were jeering and very unhappy at the final. And um, I don't blame them, frankly. It's a, it's a terrible thing when um, you go into the comp as a, as a, in girls' teams, and you know you've got no chance of winning, no matter how good you are. Did are you guys? Are you guys? Did you guys follow that story about that uh, that MMA, that mixed martial arts? Oh yeah, um, that's a terrible uh, story. Yeah, it was. Well, I I, I couldn't help. I, I thought I thought because I heard the commentary about it saying it was brutal to watch. So I actually I watched it, um, and it's you know less than two rounds long. Is this the one that ended with a fractured skull? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the follow-up to it. All I know is that it was the first time a, you know, a trans, a, a, a trans woman, female, yeah. well, trans woman, well, a yeah. trans woman who had been, had been, he, she, she had been up till two years ago, three years ago. She'd been not only a guy; she'd been a, a, a U.S. Marine Special Forces soldier who'd done a couple of tours in Afghanistan and so on. She transitioned when she got back, and she and she became. Mixed my, and this was the first time she'd got a, a big tie against somebody. And and look, what was interesting was that uh, they didn't look. They didn't look. On, to be fair, they didn't look on the surface horribly mismatched. But the girl was. In fact, the girl was a bit taller. Mm. Uh, and she and, and in the first round, she was far more skillful, and she you know kept him at bay and was better on her feet. But the guy was just waiting. Sorry, the, sorry. The her, her opponent. Her opponent was clearly just waiting for a moment to grab her around the neck, as she did in the second round, got her on the ground, and nearly choked her to death. You know, it was just horrific. And you go, well, where does it stop? Because I, I think I joked some time ago, maybe on an early podcast, about when are they going to, you know, when the first trans heavyweight boxer, what's going to happen there? Yeah. What's going to happen in boxing? Uh, you could have, well, you could what, have a What's going to happen to women's sport in general? What's going to happen to women's sport in general? Like, uh, are we going towards a ridiculous situation? Where there's no, where there's no divisions, and it's just uh, everything's open. So instead of men's cricket and women's cricket, there'll just be cricket, which means women won't be playing. Uh, will we have instead of uh, women's AFL and men's AFL just AFL? Women won't be playing. It's it, it, it potentially in the name of equality, we're going to deny so much opportunity and uh, and athleticism, and it's uh, it, it's crazy wrong. Well, look, on the subject of cricket, we've got to go to that long overdue decision by the MCC to abolish the gender normative term batsman. Um, will it still be OK to bowl a maiden over, I wonder? Will it, will it be OK to field at third man? I think the, um, the PC version of that is just to say third. A 12th man, he's gone. He's gone completely. Yep. He's just 12. And the night watchman, just a, now the night watch. Um, but look, uh, the, the new term I gather is batter, and that sounds doesn't sound right. Like batter, it sounds like somebody in a lab in Wuhan. Yeah, a, a batter. That's a, that's an American compromise because in baseball, it's batter up, it's batter up. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, batter up in Australia means 
throw him in a throw him in a vat of um, of um, you know liquid and then boil and then fry him. In in Glasgow, you drop Mars bars in it. Cricket's always been mired in controversy because I remember uh, when I was a a foreign correspondent in Asia, a story broke uh, uh, that there you probably remember this story that uh, some scandal about Pakistani players who'd been betting on games they'd been playing in, and and I was in um, Lahore with my my friend and rival uh, uh, Lindsay. Lindsay from the age and um, uh, anyway I said to Lindsay we've got to cover this story he said how are we going to do it I said we'll, we'll go and find out where you you place a bet on cricket in Lahore so he said uh, I said come on let's jump in a cab he said it'll be far too dangerous I said it'll be fine so we jump in a cab and we said to the driver look we 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 want a bet we want a cricket bet and this guy said yeah and Drove us some darkened alleyway, walked us down. Absolutely, I'm 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 ahead of you here. I'm ahead of you here. <laughs> well, let me finish my story. Walked us down this dark alley. Lindsay's getting really nervous, despite his his reputation as a tough guy. And we're going to this escorting's room upstairs, darkened room. The light goes on, and uh, we're surrounded by cricket equipment. And the guy said, "What do you want? A, a big cricket bet or a large, a small cricket bet?" <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely change story. And Lindsay said, mate, oh, Lindsay said, you're never going to live this down. <laughs> no, you just reminded me of a great line from Clive Lloyd, the um, brilliant West Indian captain. Um, when Brian Lara, uh, fantastically gifted left-hand batsman, uh, his first daughter was born and um, the girl was named Sydney because that's where... Brian Lara scored his first Test century, and Clive Lloyd uh, merely observed that it's just as well he didn't score that century in Lahore. <laughs> Why is that, Tim? <laughs> oh, look, I don't know. I just remiss was to sign off. Yeah, Lahore Lara. You know, it's just a, it's alliterative. It's a bit too cheesy. Championships. Yeah. Can't think of any other reason um, why you'd object to it. <laughs> Melbourne, big disappointment for Melbourne. It was looking forward to being declared the most lockdown city in the world until the third umpire was called in because it, it seems like Buenos Aires had yes. sneaked in an extra week somewhere, so they've still got another week to go. How confident are we that they'll, um, they're will they going to get gold in this one? Well, I've got to, let me tell you, um, that's a very good question. So it's, it's, you know, it's Australia against Argentina. And, and, and as it happens, tomorrow afternoon at about five o'clock, I know you guys don't follow rugby union, but will be the first of two tests the Wallabies play against Argentina, so that will be a proxy a proxy arena for this. You know, who you know, whatever happens on the lockdown front, we can at least mitigate against it on the rugby field. And by the way, what what are the chances, though, Simon, no, of uh, both teams actually coming out of the dressing rooms? Wouldn't it be more appropriate if they just if they just stayed inside for the whole game? Have the Argentinians improved since their abysmal performance in the Falkland Islands, Simon? Bring me up to date on this. Look, I, I happened to um, a couple of years ago. I, I had a, a, an online date with a very, very lovely, interesting woman from Argentina, and um, we had a lovely dinner in Sydney. Get that Simon button ready. Um, and we got a, like a house on fire, really well for ages. But but. but 
because we were both sort of, you know, we're more or less contemporaneous. We, you know, uh, we've managed to avoid talking about the Falcon War for the first two dates entirely. But on the third date, <laughs> the elephant was so vast in the room that we that some, we had to, and it, and then and then it all just fell apart. Uh, you know, uh, I couldn't help saying that I was broadly supportive of the British position, which I'm not so sure I am anymore, but I was then. Uh, and uh, she basically just looked at me and said, well, <laughs> that's it. The game's up. And then uh, we, we, that was it. It was very, you know. You didn't even get to tango. Didn't go as far as, a, not even my first tango lesson, which I believe is. What, um, what, what do you think was your, what do you think was your major um, diplomatic faux pas in these discussions, Simon? But you didn't, you didn't reference the famous private eye headline back in the, back in the day of. Uh, gotcha. Gotcha. No, 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 no. That was the London Sun. No, the um the better one was in Private Eye. Kill an RG, win a Metro. <laughs> Any other business before we declare this podcast uh, closed? I think we've covered all the major issues. Uh, I can't well, remember. We, I, I, I guess there's still time for headline of the week, isn't there? And uh, for this, I go to Yahoo News, Yahoo Finance UK, and their headline, CO2 Shortage. UK secures a deal to ease food supplies fears. It's <laughs> uh, extraordinary, a shortage of CO2. That well, Obviously, our efforts about against uh, climate change uh, to save the world from climate change are really, really working. Well, pe- people, don't, people aren't aware that, um, quite apart from the fact that the CO2 is vital for the plant... You know, Fire extinguishers. You know, plants need it. If we, if we haven't got any CO2 in the atmosphere, trees can't grow... They won't produce the oxygen that we need to breathe. But what I, I found out a bit about this a few years ago when I was working on a campaign of promoting carbon capture and storage is that, um, you know, one of, the, one of the benefits if we did, if the government embraced carbon capture really well is that, you know, we you know, Australians depend on manufactured CO2 for beer. For beer. Let, 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 let alone anything else. If we weren't making, if we weren't producing CO two industrially, we wouldn't have any beer. And on that note, <laughs> well, that's quite marvellous. Uh, look, all the news uh, that's fit to print and more on Radio B You've been listening to uh, what did I call it at the start? Six o'clock swirl. I think we've gone back to I, that. I, I dropped the happy hour title, didn't I? We're back to six o'clock swirl. We're back. There'll be another edition of the six o'clock happy hour <laughs> <laughs> next week. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. People gonna stand soon after they fall. People gonna hear the call. People see the day through the dark of the night. People gonna make it right. Sometimes I'm weak, sometimes I'm strong, sometimes I can't shake. Blues for long, but when I'm down and out of the fight, I know people gonna make it right. Mm, people gonna stand soon after they fall. People gonna hear the call. People see the day 